Church family, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Numbers chapter 11. For many reasons then today, what a joy it was to celebrate the parent and child dedications. Church family, we're so excited for you in this season of life. And uh, if I heard the church family correctly, by God's grace, they said they would. I think that counts as free babysitting, just like across the board. <laughs> Pretty sure what that means. If you had seen the fine print on the slide, it was in there somewhere. So call it in, all right? Uh, we're here together. And uh, goodness knows my family needs that, right? We need each other. We're continuing to follow the life story of Moses, skipping through the major moments and milestones in his life and the life of the people he led, the Israelite nation. And every turn we've seen that the Messiah he was going to foreshadow is greater than he was. So in our hopes, cling to. I admit, Moses, the beard and all, may seem like an odd character to follow, and think about on what is a Hallmark holiday today, on Mother's Day, Happy Mother's Day. I think we'll find maybe, perhaps surprisingly, sovereignly, accidentally, Moses is actually somebody that has a lot in common with moms. Because uh, like children that make moms, like children, the people who Moses represented were experts at probably only one thing. Grumbling and complaining. So Moses, we might say, the patron saint of those to whom complaints arise. Moms, you're in good company. Last week, we left this nation at an incredible moment, didn't we? At the foot of Mount Sinai, seeing a holy and a just and a gracious God. In fact, the nation of Israel would have camped there at that mountain for another almost year as God continued to share his law and the plans for the tabernacle. And the people took and built that tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the many elements there. It was, it was nearly a year that they sat there at the base of that mountain in the presence of God. Then a moment comes. It's like the day that you leave for vacation, right? Like everything they've been waiting for, this promised land, a new identity with God's presence there, they are leaving for the promised land. They break camp. The Ark of the Covenant goes for its first ride, moves to the front of the people in God's presence supernaturally in symbolic ways, the fire and the cloud lead the nation of Israel to leave the foot the mountain. But nearly right away, count it, exactly three days into their exciting journey to the best life they've ever experienced, the grumbling begins. In fact, this nation puts on a master class on how to grumble. We're only going to look at four easy ways to grumble like a pro today, but they probably give us many more. We're going to look at those and... Uh, Please know my goal is not to teach your families how to grumble better. I understand. They're already professionals. <laughs> but I think when we identify what grumbling really can look like, what it really does to our souls, we'll learn better how to address it, perhaps avoid some of the mistakes this nation faced. So step one, how to grumble, 
forget God. Look at Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 into verse 3. The people complained in the hearing of the Lord, I love that, about their misfortunes. When the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And the people cried out to Moses. And Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Guys, it was just a year ago, God was holy on a mountain, the entire earth shook, and the people of Israel were so in awe of God, they said, make them be quiet, we're backing away, Moses, we'll listen to you, but we know we can't stand the presence of God. And Moses had brought God's word to the elders and said, this is what God says we ought to do. We need to reflect his justice, his ways, because he is creating a special relationship with us. He's promised it by grace to Abraham. Will we agree to do this to the God who rescued us, to a God who's for us, to a God who's obviously powerful? And all the elders of all of Israel said, we will do that. We will do all the words of the Lord. Three days. Their trip lasted three days before they start grumbling in the presence of God about their misfortunes. What are they referring to? What misfortunes do the Israelites have? The misfortune of escaping slavery? The misfortune of seeing a divine rescue? Of being the one nation in the world the Almighty God names as his own? The, the misfortune of being just a short journey away from a land that God says is to be theirs and flowing with milk and honey, a land that he had promised to their ancestor Abraham? Like, what misfortunes are they grumbling about? Those are the things God had done. We don't know what they were grumbling about, what misfortunes they referred to. Maybe it was the journey. Maybe the sandals were getting dirty. Maybe they had really loved their campsite at Mount Sinai. Like always in life, there's something that could be complained about. But they had forgotten what God had done. And that's a great thing about grumbling. It doesn't have to be grounded in reality at all, does it? It definitely doesn't have to be centered on a life that's about and for God, about him. Whatever they grumbled about, it's clear that in order to grumble about the bad things in their life, they had forgotten the God things in their life, right? In order to grumble, they had forgotten about what God had done, what God was doing, and what God had promised to do. I love that God points out, he could hear them, right? It's like a minivan conversation. I know what you're talking about back there. I'm literally in your presence, and I'm literally God. They'd forgotten God. And he's holy and jealous for his glory, so he's right to be divinely ticked off and apply a punishment to his covenant people. They didn't just forget God and what he had done and what he was doing. They had forgotten he was with them and aware of their attitude. Because in order to grumble, you have to forget God. When we grumble, what we're betraying that moment 
like the Israelites, is that we're forgetting God. And we ought to know better. We'd like to think we do. But even lesser things we grumble about, don't we? Even in the face of lesser goods, thank God, we grumble. I imagine you've been excited about a great opportunity and still found a way to grumble in the past, right? Or you know people who do. It's a, it's a trip. It's a new job opportunity. It's, it's, a, it's a vacation that you're excited for this summer, right? You're counting down the days. You're getting the vehicle ready. Everything's packed up and inside the car. And how many miles does it take, guys? What's your number in your family? Please tell me it's lower than my number in my family. I mean, it may not even be out of the driveway, right? My shoes, or, or I'm hungry, or, or I'm thirsty, or they're poking me, right? Like, we start grumbling right away in the face of we're going to be at the beach soon, or we're going to this thing soon, or we've been waiting for months for this, and now you're unhappy? We forget how to contextualize a greater good in front of a momentary discomfort for much lesser things in life than a God who's for us that we just sang about, who's made us his children, who's offered us life, who's brought us out of death. We forget God. In order to grumble, Israel forgot God. They got caught, they fessed up, and then they got back to grumbling. Let's see, Numbers chapter, chapter 11, verse 4, it starts right away. They literally just named a place after being burned, quite literally, for their grumbling. But it says, now a rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. That cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Uh, <coughs> but now, look at our strength. It's dried up. And there is nothing at all but all of this manna to look at. Now, the manna was like coriander seed with an appearance like bedlam, And people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it into mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp of the night, the manna fell with it. Man, doesn't this continue to sound like every family experience you've ever had ever? Right? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. How much longer? How much further? Are we almost there? I'm hot. No, I'm cold. I want something to do. In this case, though, it's like Israel. Israel wants to leave. Israel's tired of leaving. Israel needs help. Israel doesn't want help. Israel's hungry, but Israel doesn't want that to eat. But Israel's still hungry. Do you guys remember what manna was? Manna was a bread that God was providing every single day miraculously for this nation of about 2 million people. Every day they woke up to food. We learn a second way to become expert grumblers here. Because even in an incredible, miraculous, provisionary moment, 
they were idealizing a past. And if you want to grumble well, I suggest idealizing your past. Each day, Israel, enough for that day, was given manna. God promised enough. It's where the, the word came from. Enough for each day, instructing them, don't worry about tomorrow, but instead trust me by gratefully gathering just enough for today. And tomorrow, I'm going to be faithful to meet you there for that day. Doesn't that sound a little bit familiar? How many of us are putting our trust in something other than God for tomorrow? But yeah, that's, that's another conversation. The Israelites weren't content with this incredible setup. The rabble and the riffraff, those within the nation who weren't setting their hearts on God, spread a contagious grumbling. They had a craving, literally a lust for a diversified menu. They were hungry for something new. They wanted meat. They wanted that protein. And they rattle off as their discomfort and discontentment spreads. A grocery list of comfort foods they're missing. They remember all those wonderful vegetables they'd had time to grow and all the fish that they could catch in the Nile River. And, ah, uh, if I could have a fish fry right now, right? Like, and it was free. Was it free? I mean, in comparison to the free, miraculous bread that they're given right now, was that fish really free? I mean, mostly, it just caught, you know, a little bait, a basket to catch the fish, and, oh, wait, their freedom, right? Their male children, their safety, their ability to have dignity as humans in a nation that enslaved them and forced them into labor and took everything away from them. That's all it cost. But in order to grumble about a menu change. They idealize their past. Church, when we compare today to the way things used to be, we're usually remembering what used to be far better than it actually was. At the very least, we're conveniently forgetting all the things that were to our advantage that not everybody got to experience. When we compare the worst of today, we usually are comparing it to the best of yesterday. So Israel photoshopped the bad stuff out of their slavery, which was, you know, just about everything, in order to grumble about their greatly improved present circumstances. And I wish we were different. Like, I wish I was different. One of my more embarrassing moments that I can recall in life was a Christmas morning really early in our marriage. We were in a little one-bedroom apartment, and my parents came to Michigan to celebrate Christmas with us. And, you know, you know the scene, perhaps. There's, we were in an apartment, and we're newly married, so we had, like, you know, a little two-foot Christmas tree, right? Sitting, you know, there in the corner. And my parents had brought some gifts, and I hope we had thought to have gifts for my parents. And, you know, they were packaged around the tree, and there was, you know, some really big ones. We were like, oh, man, this is going to be a good Christmas. And, uh, you know, it was Christmas morning, so we just made coffee in our, like, really generic, really cheap, you know, 
the, the most inexpensive thing you could get from Walmart for coffee, right? Brewing probably the worst kind of coffee you could think to buy. Uh, as inexperienced adults, right? We were drinking our coffee and making conversation, and you know, Keurigs were pretty new back then, and they were really expensive. And, and my dad was like, what do you think about that Keurig system? And you know, pouring coffee out of our coffee pot there. And I was like, you know, I was trying to make, you know, like David Zimmerman proud or something. I'm like, Keurig, you know, it's not real coffee. It's, uh, you know, it, it, we're like cooler than that. We want real, it's got to be brewed right, right? Like those little K-cups, they're not a thing. It doesn't taste as good. It's so plasticky, right? He's like really kind of sharing my opinion on Keurig at the time. And, uh, you know, my dad graciously took all that in. And uh, then we turned our attention to presents, and we opened up our present, and there from my parents was a brand new Keurig coffee machine. <laughs> they had spent top dollar in order to bless their kids who were newly married and starting off in life. And he had just, you know, happened to make conversation about it, to get my opinion, and I had embarrassed myself. And why was I embarrassed? Because I knew in the face of this act of kindness and generosity that the way I had talked about it, right, like I should be ashamed of. I had, I had snuffed that kindness. And if we understand that nice coffee systems deserve kindness, how is it then that we grumble our way through lives that are so thick with the blessings of God, we really need a machete to cut our way through? That's the way our minds and hearts so naturally function. We're prone to grumble in the very presence of the blessings of God. Right? I wonder, are you grumbling right now a blessing? Sometimes the very thing you're praying for today is the thing you're going to grumble about tomorrow. Isn't that the way we work? Israel was doing that. Provided food, provided safety, provided leadership and direction. They're wishing for a slavery for a fish fry. They teach us a lesson here. Don't idealize the best parts of your past. One, it's a lie. Two, it wrecks your present contentment and joy and your future of trusting on and depending on God. So here's Israel, grumbling and complaining, craving some comfort food. And in response, Moses, their brave leader, puts on a clinic on how to lead wisely with poise. Battery grumbles too. Let's read it in verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping. Throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. We want different food, Moses. And Moses said to the Lord, what many a mom has said to themselves, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Then he empathizes with the role of parents. He goes, did I conceive all these people? 
Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? I'm not their parent. I'm not their mom. Why is this my problem? He says, and where am I going to get meat to give all these people? They weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all of these people alone. There's truth there. The burden is too heavy for me. It's also true. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. I find, if I find favor in your sight, that I may not, that I may not see my wretchedness. And what a moment to have access to this experience. Moses reaches his limit and tells an angry God, I'm not their mama. They're a hot mess. I can't do this anymore. If this is the job, I quit. I'm life. Like I'm out. You want to know how to grumble? Throw a pity party, right? Throw a pity party. And listen, I get it. Many of us in a season of leadership in our life, whether that is parenthood, whether that is a job, whether that's an area of oversight, we can empathize with this experience that Moses has right now. But Moses throws himself a pity party. He starts complaining about their complaining. He starts grumbling about their grumbling. He starts being negative about their negativity, all the while not aware that he's doing the very same thing he's upset about. Moses is feeling aggravated about the way things have gone, and he starts accusing God of foul play. What? Why have you dealt ill with me? Haven't I done enough by now to deserve some favor? Why did you give me this assignment? Moses feels like he's earned a better role with the better team for a better nation. And if he can't get that kind of life, he wants out of living. He throws himself a pity party. He can't see a way that God could possibly be at work here. So he grumbles about the work that God has given him to do. It's interesting way to think about it. Throwing pity parties, in a sense, we're grumbling and saying, God, I don't think you can do this. God, I don't think you know what you're up to. I've read an article by Pastor John Beeson who said, when we grumble, we declare our distrust in God's sovereign rule over our lives. When we grumble, we declare our distrust in God's sovereign rule over our lives. In this sense, the grumbling Moses, throwing a pity party, unhappy with the work God has given him to do, is saying, God, I don't trust that you can do this. He's saying, God, I don't think it's fair that you'd ask me to be the one you do this through. Sometimes grumbling looks like that. Not convinced God is who he is. Not sure I want God to work through me. At least not for this thing. Not for this moment. Not for that person. Not for that job. Not for my pain. Sometimes grumbling looks like throwing a pity party. But God is gracious and continues to work 
through Moses. Skipping down to verse 18, God tells Moses to say to the people, they're asking for food, right? They want a different menu. He says, say to the people, consecrate yourself for tomorrow. Remember the last time they consecrated themselves? A year ago, at the foot of the mountain, where God was at work? They hear this term, set yourself apart, get ready for what God's about to do. God's about to be at work. Consecrate yourself for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? It was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. Can you hear kind of the tone that God's communicating to Moses right now? He goes on. You should not just eat for one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or 20 days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you've rejected the Lord who's among you and have wept before him saying, why did I come out of Egypt? Man. Want to know how to grumble? Try to find fulfillment your own way. Right? God's saying, you want to know how to grumble? People visual, this is how you're grumbling. You're trying to find fulfillment outside of me on your own terms in your own way. He's saying, I wanted you, nation, to depend on me. I'm your God. I've been providing for you. I've been guiding you. I am your fulfillment. But you've rejected me and you want fulfillment your own way. Spoiler alert, it wouldn't be the last time. God's drawing that out in obvious ways. And he says, okay. Okay. You can have it then. See how well that works out for you. Perhaps the most dramatic way to grumble against God, and the most dangerous way we could grumble against God is to try to find fulfillment or meaning or purpose or life or happiness outside of him. Sometimes the very way we live our life is a grumble. I'm going to do this my own way. Even though Moses can't provide for this idolatry, he can't figure out how to feed that many people. They had supply chain issues. God delivers Israel a bumper crop of their heart's desire. We see it in verse 31. It's a miracle. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea. Birds, quail, we're on the same page here. Brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey to the other side, all around the camp, about two cubits above the ground. I mean, he's got three feet of bird all over the place. God has a sense of humor in his punishment. Parents, take note. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered the least gathered ten omers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, 
The anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kilbreth Hadvada, because they buried the people who had the craving. They journeyed on from there. Three feet of quail. They don't even have to hunt the birds. The birds fall in their shopping basket. Talk about farm to table. Not even the legendary drive-through teams at Chick-fil-A can serve up a bird this fast, right? <laughs> it's amazing. Was this a blessing? Did all that grumbling pay off? It's a windfall. Church, the worst thing that God can do when he is not the desire of our heart is to give us the desire of our heart. The quail didn't satisfy them, not like they hoped. The people who had lusted and craved for a way to live their best lives apart from God died with their dreams literally partially chewed in their mouth. And we grumble all the time trying to find fulfillment outside of God. And Israel craved quail instead of being content with their God's provision for them. It makes us think, what's our quail? What's your quail? What do you crave instead of trusting God? What do you lust for or dream of? You find yourself thinking, if only I had this, then. Or, or maybe even worse, I deserve I deserve to enjoy this. I hope God is merciful enough to refuse to give us what we crave outside of him. Because we're wrong. They won't satisfy, even if we stuffed ourselves full to the point it extrudes out of our noses. It wouldn't be enough. Because any source of fulfillment other than God is nothing more the daydreams of a grumbler. And Israel was really good at being a grumbler. So what do we take from this? Why are we looking at pro tips on how to grumble? To forget God and idealize the past. To find fulfillment in our own ways. Throw a pity party. Why do we look at that? Especially on a day where maybe we're hoping for something a little bit more charming. Because grumbling is a great way to ruin your life. We need to know that. We see that in the life of the people of Israel and the life of leadership. Grumbling is a great way to ruin your life and it's contagious. It twists our hearts away from depending on God. Why do you think all of this grumbling time and time again is recorded in Scripture? I think a big reason for that is for our benefit. We're told that all Scripture is for our benefit so that we ourselves can learn from and not repeat the toxic sin of grumbling. 
And just so we're on the same page, I would say that grumbling is a discontented attitude expressed in thought or action that puts one's own understanding of what should be above God's sovereign reality. Right? Discontented attitude. I'm not happy. I'm not content. I'm grumbling. I'm expressing that in in any number of ways because I think I know better than God. And at the end of the day, grumbling is sin. Grumbling is sin. Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 15 says it this way. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. At least we ought to having the hope of life in us, free to live without grumbling or disputing, complaining. James chapter 5 says it this way in verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So let's be clear. Grumbling is bad. But Israel learned that really physically. How come they couldn't stop? And how can we stop? I think we find the answer in the rest of that passage in James. In verse 10, it says this. Here's an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. The purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Think of the root of our ways to stop and overcome grumbling is to be made alive in Jesus Christ. So much so we are able to then learn that God has a purpose in everything. And it's for our good. To know that he is compassionate, even in my present circumstance. No, he is always demonstrating mercy. When we learn about God, he's compassionate and merciful and purposeful. He's so powerful, he sovereignly has a purpose for everything. We can know with God that no matter what we're facing, we don't need to grumble about it. In light of a God like that, we can hope following the instruction Paul gives to the believers in Thessalonica when he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He's saying, don't grumble, rejoice and give thanks, because God has a merciful, merciful purpose, a compassionate purpose. He's working this out for a good end. So why grumble? It demonstrates that we don't believe or trust what he's doing. I've heard it said that gratitude, then, is the antidote to grumbling. Gratitude, the antidote to grumbling. And that's true, but I feel like that's rooted in just, like, my hustle. Like, I just have to choose to find a way to be grateful here. I'm going I'm to try harder. I think we should ground that in something beyond our own determination, and we can't. 
It's God's sovereign grace that turns grumbling into gratitude. It's a knowledge of who God is, that he is sovereign and in control and gracious to us in all things that then helps us to turn what we would want to be naturally a grumbling attitude into one of gratefulness. Because a grumbling attitude at its root is unbelief. It refuses to believe that God intends good for us. Grumbling says, this is no good, I want better. But gratefulness says, this may not be good, but in Christ, I have the best things that I need. Grumbling says, this is no good, I can't take it. But persevering says, this may not be good, but in Christ, I know that its purpose is good. So we're going to keep going. Grumbling says, this is no good, and I'm telling everyone. Rejoicing says, this may not be good, but I've got something greater to talk about. I want to quickly have an aside here, though. Because when we're talking about grumbling and complaining, I think it can be easy to mispreach that message or to mishear that message. Some leaders might use this topic as a springboard to try to intimidate and bully people into silence in a way that they can try to control a people or a narrative, something like that. So church, let's be clear. There's a difference between the sin of grumbling and a good pursuit of accountability, justice, and holiness. Clear difference. Grumbling is not seeking accountability in love, advocating for justice, addressing sin with grace, or lamenting towards faith. That is not grumbling. We're allowed to be emotionally mature and whole humans in the face of a life experience that comes with hardship. And we're allowed to account for the fact that the things we're unhappy about sometimes are wrong and need to be addressed. So in the face of sin, injustice, manipulation, evil abuse of any kind, whether towards leaders or peers in the church, let's speak the truth in love. But in the, and in the experience of heartbreaks or sorrow, let's mourn. Let's lament. These can lead towards greater trust and gratitude for who God is and what he's done. So speak against wrongs and don't grumble. Lament and don't grumble because God's sovereign grace turns grumbling into gratitude. The nation of Israel botched that assignment. Moses messed that assignment up. Moms, dads, leaders, friends, we messed that up too. You know who didn't? Jesus gives us an example of how to do this. Not only is he our power to live in gratitude, but he is our example. 1 Peter 2 says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God's sovereign grace, Jesus' eyes, 
turned what could have been grumbling into gratitude, into a life that was lived in light of reality. Goes on to say, he himself then bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to the sin of grumbling and live in righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Jesus' confidence in the goodness of God kept him from fighting back or grumbling. He rested in God's will, saying, not my will, but yours, God, be done. That example of faithful surrender and trust in God's graciousness will turn our discontent in life into gratitude. Because since God is good and powerfully at work, I can be grateful for what has been. I can be joyful about right now, and I can trust what will be. Amen? God's sovereign grace turns our grumbling into gratitude. Let's be people who live in light of who God is.